Father, I am in need of your grace and help this morning to deliver your word. I pray you'd free me, uh, my mind, from uh, various thoughts and allow me, Lord, to uh, rightly divide the word of God. I thank you that your word is truth. Jesus, you said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We eat in so many places, but not in the word of God. So, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to eat and eat well. Um, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to reflect even more Jesus Christ because of what we hear this morning. Lord, again, I pray for your help. Lord, would you open our eyes and unstop our ears, stir our hearts, and most of all, fix our attention on Christ and him crucified and him risen. We thank you that Jesus is enough, and we give you praise in his name. Amen. Well, I don't think preachers really ought to be uh, comedians um, as their main uh, approach to preaching, but maybe a joker here doesn't hurt. So let me give it a shot this morning. I got three really great, maybe you would call them dad jokes. Let's start off with this. Uh, joke number one, why did the sloth cross the road? Why did the sloth cross the road? I don't know, it's still crossing. Okay, all right. Joke number two, why don't sloths kiss on the first date? Ah, ah, I thought you were going to say because they're Christians. Uh, they want to take it slow, yes. Well, and I also heard about a couple of sloths that were hanging out, and one said to the other one, man, I really despise moss, but lately it's kind of been growing on me. <laughs> something, something. All right, all right. Well, all of those jokes highlight what we think about when we think about a sloth, that they're slow and they're lazy. Anybody here see, see uh, Zootopia, every parent here with young kids? You remember that scene where the sloth is stamping? Yeah. It takes like 18 minutes to stamp the letter, right? They are slow. And sloths are just really weird creatures. Do you know how they hang out? Do you know how they hang out most of the time? They hang out upside down. They're hanging upside down from a branch. They have such a slow metabolism, it takes a full month to digest a leaf. And if you'll forgive me, I'll share this tidbit as well. When they <clears throat> poop, they do one-third of their body weight at a time. And what's more is they sleep 15 hours a day. You say, that reminds me of somebody I know on the sleep part. Okay. Well, the book of Proverbs talks about sloth and diligence by my count some 55 times. And what's interesting is the word sloth in Hebrew means loose, as in a loose string on a bow, rendering that bow useless. That's what laziness or slothfulness does to us. In many ways, it renders us useless. Now, to help make the point that sloth or laziness is not a good thing, Solomon, the divinely inspired, inspired writer of Proverbs, moves from the mammal family to the mollusk family. 
where he talks about the slimy, slow-moving, shellless snail-like creature called a sluggard. And he does so with a bit of uh, teeth to his pungent humor. He says, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sloth turns on his bed. And then later he'll say, um, a sloth buries his hand in the dish and is too weary to bring it back to his mouth. I can't help but think of Jabba the Hutt, this, this, this massive creature. Well, it's no mistake by now, and I think I royally failed my introduction. I will not be a comic again. I want to talk to you from Proverbs on sloth and diligence. And I'll be honest with you, I'm looking forward to getting back to straight exposition. We walk down a text because I just have a difficult time with topical messages. There's so many verses that you got to kind of bring together and you got to figure out which ones you want to use and which ones you don't. So here's my best stab. But before we dive into a few texts, I, I, I want to I take up the person who might be saying to himself or herself, well, I don't think sloth or diligence has anything to do with me. I'm not, I mean, I'm not a... I'm not a 34-year-old guy living in my parents' parents' basement, driving their car, eating out of their cabinets, living on their dollar, drinking energy drinks and playing video games to 5.45 a.m. and then waking up at 4 p.m. and doing it all over again. That's not me. Well, you, like me, might find that there's more application than you might think on this message on sloth and diligence. So here's how we're going to tackle it. You might have an outline in front of you. We're going to first of all look at Two profiles. We're going to look at a biblical profile of the slothful and then the diligent. So I'm, I'm going to quote a lot of verses, read a lot of verses, but I'm going to start in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. I believe Pastor Cleet read that. There's seven things I want us to see on the profile of a slothful person. Number one, a slothful person lacks initiative. Chapter 6, verse 6, this memorable phrase, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, what does she do? She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Such a person, a slothful person, doesn't do anything unless you ask them explicitly to do that. When I was a floor manager in, in manufacturing <coughs> at Curad Bandages, I would watch what people would do when the, uh, when the manufacturing line would go down. Most people would just kind of sit and take it as a free break. Others would actually take it upon themselves to clean up their work area, to do something productive that will help our downrange production. Those were the kinds of people we wanted to, to raise up in the leadership. Why? Because they took initiative. Not the sloth. The slothful person totally lacks initiative. They won't do anything unless they're asked to do it. He goes on to say, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep? No, no, no. A little slumber? No, no. A little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty, says, will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. He tells us, by the way, laziness does lead to poverty. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. The second characteristic of the slothful is this. Slothful people do not finish 
what they start. Proverbs 12, 17, whoever is slothful will not roast his game. Not only, what, whoever is slothful, let me read it again, will not roast his game. So not only will a slothful person rarely take initiative, but sometimes they do, they don't finish the task that they started. Imagine going out and hunting. Pastor Cleek killed a great eight-point buck Friday night. Massive buck. Imagine he harvests this buck, and then he just lets it hang there and rot and not process it and eat it. To, take, to start something, but not to finish it. Now, men, men, this can be really convicting, right? It's easy to start jobs and even finish jobs that have obvious immediate feedback. You know, a car isn't working in your family, right? Well, I got to get that going right away. Or the grass is growing, I can see that. But it's a lot easier, to st those tasks that take multiple approaches and multiple touches, just to kind of let them go. Because after all, we just kind of learn to function with something that's not quite fixed in the kitchen or wherever, and I think it may drive our wives mad. Slothful people don't finish what they start. It is so quiet right now on that point. Third of all, slothful people are all walk and no talk. Proverbs 14, 17, it says, In toil there is profit. But mere talk only tends in poverty. I can tell you the people I've talked to in the last 12 years who have said, this is what I'm going to do. And they have these grandiose plans of something they're going to do. And guess what? They never do it. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And the reality is, I suspect that all of us have a little bit of talk without walk in us. Fourth of all, there's no planning. A slothful person does not anticipate, is not proactive, it doesn't, doesn't plan. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn, Proverbs 20, verse 4, he will seek harvest and have nothing. That, the, it, 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 that person fails to see, hey, there's got to be plowing and planting and then harvesting, fails to see that, and then when springtime comes and then fall comes, oh, nothing's there. Why? Because you did not plan ahead. Fifth of all, a slothful person is easily distracted. Proverbs 28, 19 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. What does the person in this text follow? What do they follow? Worthless pursuits. <coughs> in other words, a slothful person isn't necessarily an inactive person who does nothing. They just don't do the right things, the things that need to get done. And that is why, by the way, parents, it's important to give our kids task and then stay with them until they get it done so they can learn instead of being distracted, they can learn focus. Well, sixth of all, such a person, a slothful person, makes excuses. This one is funny. Proverbs 22, verse 13, it occurs in another place as well. <clears throat> the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. In other words, they're just, <laughs> they're just talking a bunch of nonsense, right? They're making up excuses. 
well, I don't have any gifts. I never had any opportunities. The system's just stacked against me. No one ever showed me the right way. And this excuse after excuse after excuse, and sometimes there's an element of truth in that, but nonetheless, that becomes the excuse for inactivity. And when you confront such a person about their excuse making, you typically are the one that has the problem and doesn't see it. Not them! Because Proverbs 26.16 goes on to say, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And then we get to the seventh one. This is going to seem paradoxical. Like, no, I don't, this doesn't seem like it, it should be this way. But seventh of all, slothful people end up empty and unfulfilled. Go to Proverbs 13, verse 4. I want you to lay your eyes on this text. It says this, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Now, again, it seems contradictory, doesn't it? Because at first blush, I would think, well, man, the slothful person just does whatever they want. They're satisfied their cravings. But the paradox is this, the great irony is the person who never does what needs to get done, life's priorities, ends up empty and unfulfilled. Now you might say, where do you see this in the text? Notice a word that is repeated twice. He says, the soul of the sluggard. Did you see that? He says, the soul of the diligent. He's talking about the inner person, right? He's talking about something deep, who we are. See, when you accomplish what you're supposed to as a father, a husband, a mother, a wife, a child, a student, a worker, don't you have a healthy sense of accomplishment and fulfillment when you see the body of work that you're able to accomplish? But we all know what it is to waste the day in which we were supposed to do something, right? Don't we have kind of like a sickly feeling inside of us? Like, oh man, what a waste. Now when that's the pattern of your life, you are going to be empty and unfulfilled. Somebody said poverty not only empties your wallet, it hollows out your soul. This doesn't contradict, by the way, what the Bible says about Sabbath. The Lord himself took Sabbath, right? He created the world in how many days? And on the seventh day, he rested. But that's what makes Sabbath so sweet, right? Is that you're doing the things that you're supposed to do, and now it's time to rest. So those are seven things. A bit Sunday schoolish, I get it. And we're going to take this to the cross in just a moment. But how are you doing on initiative? Finishing what you started. Walking out what you say you're going to do. Making excuses. Planning ahead. Are you empty and unfulfilled? Because I think we tend to give laziness a pass that maybe we don't give other sins. Like lust, adultery, bad. Hatred, bad. Prejudice, bad. But laziness, do you think maybe we give that a pass just a bit? There's a reason it's known as one of the seven deadly sins. And by the way, every sin is deadly because every sin requires the sacrifice of Christ. 
But um, Kenny Chesney. Anybody listen to Kenny Chesney here at all? I'm more of a, like, when it comes to country music, the, four, the old guys. But, but, but I read about a song by Kenny Chesney called Down by the Road. It's a story of, anybody know that song? Oh, you can come and sing it, Michelle? No. It's about a boy who takes a liking to a girl down the street and wants to marry her. And in the third stanza, there's a line that goes like this. Mama wants to know if you're not just washed in the blood, but also in water. I'm, no, no, I messed that up. See, I don't listen to it. Mama wants to know if you're washed in the blood and not just in water. All right? And then the next line is something like, but daddy wants to know if you make enough to take care of my daughter. So first line, mama wants to know if you're washed in the blood, not just in water. Real conversion, right? Like really a follower of Jesus. And the second line is, but daddy wants to know if you make enough to take care of my daughter. And daddy a Danny Aiken makes the point that we can easily think, well, the mama is being spiritually minded, right? Is, is, is this perspective uh, future son-in-law really a believer? But, but dad, he's just being materialistic. Now, what do you think about that dichotomy? Because according to Proverbs, both those are spiritually oriented questions. The Bible has something to say about slothfulness, right? And taking care of our responsibilities. And that's why I, I encourage my daughters to consider this when they will consider a prospective husband. Four things. A J, a C, a J, and an R. First of all, they have to have who? Jesus. Second of all, what's the C? Well, they have to have Jesus. They need to be part of a church. Like actually walking with a body of believers, right? As Jesus expects us. That's how we grow. And then the J is what? A job. Exactly. And you know what the R is? Anybody? Red Wing season tickets. Okay, that, the, fourth one, the fourth one's kind of optional, but we can throw that one in right there. But I do wonder, do we give the weight to the scriptures that God gives the weight to scriptures like 2 Thessalonians 3.10? You know what that says? Paul commands the church at Thessalonica, and he says, if anyone won't work, let him not what? We, 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 we afraid of that verse? 1 Timothy 5 says, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially his immediate household, this is what it says. This is what it says. He's worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. Now, there are about 140 verses or so on helping the poor. And one of the ways that we reflect the gospel is we, in fact, help the poor because there's sickness there's circumstances and all kinds of things that we need to care for people because of. But we can't use those verses to dismiss the verses I just quoted for you, right? 2 Thessalonians 3.10, 1 Timothy 5.8. Sometimes people experience poverty because they will not work. Would you turn to Proverbs chapter 24? And this is the point that this proverb is going to make. It's filling out the profile of the slothful. He says in verse 30 of Proverbs 24, I passed by the field of a who? So what does the sluggard have? 
a field. They have a field. By the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles. By the way, does, does that imagery remind you of anything? That's cursed language there, right? Remember when, when Adam and Eve plunged the world into sin, that it's going to be thorns and thistles, it's going to be a tough go at it. A slothful person is working in the direction of the curse, not in the direction of the Savior. He goes on to say, then I saw it, <coughs> excuse me, and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. See, this, is, this, this, this person has a field, but they wouldn't work it. You, a slothful person has something. They have some God-given gifts. If anything, they just have the ability to sweep a floor or to go do a cash register, or to get some training, or shovel some... Everybody has a vineyard. But what separated this guy from the others is he refused to use what he had. I couldn't help but think of this question as I thought about politics. Do we vote, do you vote primarily for who you think will give you the most money back? Or do you vote for who you think will enact the most righteous laws. How would God want us to vote? On what, who's just going to put more money in our wallet? Or who's going to enact the most righteous laws? That's something to wrestle with. So that's the profile of diligence. You know what? Or that's the profile of slothfulness. I don't have time to go through the diligence part because I want to get to points two and three, but let, let me wrap it up with this. Point one. I had Pastor Cleet read what's called the creation mandate. Twice it says we are to have what over creation? Dominion. In order to have dominion, you need to exercise what? Diligence. So this is, a this is a creation mandate. All through the scriptures, there is an, an, admonition, an encouragement, admonition to work hard. Right? Real simply, to work hard. And I'm going to end this first point with just reviewing um, what it says about the woman in Proverbs 31. What I do with a topical message, I just print out all the verses and I start circling and writing and highlighting and notes and all that. And I was floored, and we'll get to Proverbs 31, by what it says about this woman. L listen to what she does. This is the picture of diligence. An excellent wife who can find. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax. Verse 13, she works with willing hands. Verse 14, she brings her food from afar. Verse 15, she rises while it is yet night. Verse 15, she provides food for her household. Verse 15, she portions some out for her maidens. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. Verse 16, with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Verse 18, her lamp does not go out at night. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. Verse 20, she opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. Strength and dignity are her clothing, verse 25. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue, verse 26. And verse 27, she does not eat the bread of idleness. That's some kind of woman, right? She's spiritual because she's what? What's the word? She is diligent. She is diligent. Now, I just said that she's a picture of diligence, but I want to talk about, second of all, the ultimate picture of diligence. Who is the ultimate picture of diligence? Jesus Christ. And what you have is you got like high Christology in this point, but also shoe leather stuff. 
three things that I would condense down from the seven that, that Jesus pictures par excellence. First of all, Jesus embraced his work. Jesus fully embraced his work. Well, what work, you say? How about his work in creation? That's why I say high Christology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, or without him was not anything made that was made. He embraced his work in creation. He embraced his work in providence. It says in Hebrews 1, 3a, he upholds all things right now by the word of his power. But most sweetly, I think, for us, he embraced his work in salvation. Oh, Jesus knew where he came from. John 6, 68, he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now, when Jesus was on earth, he had laser focus, right? Do you, remember, do you know how many times in the Gospels it says he set his face to Jerusalem? He, the old version says he set his face like a flint. Luke 9, 7, for instance, 951. Now, that harkens back. Now, listen to this prophetic passage, Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. He says, prophetically, I hid not my back from those who strike me. I hid not my face from those who pluck the beard. I did not hide from despising and spitting. But then he goes on to say, but the Lord my God is with me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I will not be put to shame. That's what Jesus did. Jesus embraced his work for us with all of the dirt, anonymity, rejection, suffering, slander, mischaracterization, and most of all, what he would suffer on the cross, cross the righteous wrath of God. He embraced that. He set his face like a flint to that work. That's diligence, isn't it? Among many other attributes, that's diligence. And it made me think, what if we set our face likewise, like a flint, toward our responsibility as fathers, as, as husbands, as mothers, as wives, as students, as singles, as workers, even like it was for Jesus when things are tough? Diligence is indeed a spiritual virtue, especially when it's difficult. And he embraced his work. <laughs> Second of all, Jesus, he finished his work. He didn't kind of get it halfway done, you know. He didn't have initiative, but then forget finishing the job. No, no, no. John 19.30, he says, you've heard this before, to tell us die, which means it is finished, paid in full. And by the way, not grudgingly, because Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Yeah, he paid the penalty for our sins, including the sins of our sloth. And we've got to get this. Before we follow him as our example, and he is an example to follow, we've got to understand he's first and foremost a Savior because we ain't followed the example, right? He paid the price for our sins to bring us out of our slothful and sluggard-like ways as parents again and hubbies and workers and all the rest. He 
finished his work for us. And third of all, he entered into his rest. Hebrews 1, 3 and B. When he had made purification for sins, that's the cross, he was buried, he was raised again, he has now, it says, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He entered into his rest just like we can when we finish our work. By the way, not a stagnant rest, not a do-nothing rest. Jesus is at an active rest right now. The reason I say active is right now he's willing to receive and to save anyone who would come to him. Right now, he, if you were to come to him, he would receive you. And you know, according to the death of the apostle of, of Stephen, I think it's in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned to death, what did he look up in heaven and see? He saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father to receive him. He's, not, he's at rest, but it's, it's an active rest. He's willing to help and give grace. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews also says that. He's preparing a place for us, John 14. And I'm just trying to make the point that Jesus is the ultimate picture of diligence. He, he, he embraced his work, he finished his work, and he's entered into his rest. And we're called then to follow him in that way. Now the last thing I want to just cover is the motivation for diligence. Now this is for people assuming that you trusted Christ, okay? Because the, one of the difficulties of preaching through Proverbs is we're not just trying to teach a bunch of morals that anybody can agree with, right? Like it, Hopefully the second point got you to the cross. Hopefully this will get you to the cross even maybe a little bit more. Motivation for diligence. Do you think wealth is a motivation for diligence? Yes or no? We're going to have a church fight. Well, if you were to go to the book of Proverbs, would wealth be a motivation for diligence? Yes or no? Absolutely yes. Now, biblically, by the way, when we think of wealth, we think of like Western TV advertisements, you know, we think of, you know, the latest cars and all that. Like biblically, historically, wealth is all of us. You got clothes on your back. You got a refrigerator with a bunch of different food in it. You got a place to sleep. HVAC, that's wealth, okay? So I'm not diminishing when we have a tough time paying bills. That's real. But I'm just saying, historically and biblically speaking, what wealth really is. Providing for yourself and your needs. Now listen to the Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verses 4 through 5. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 20, verse 13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Now, I can, I can multiply verses like that. As you use your gifts, you will not necessarily have all your wants, but God promises you will have your needs met. So, yes, a motivation for diligence is wealth, providing for yourself and those that are under your care. There's a second motivation Proverbs gives. That is responsibility. Increased responsibility. Listen to these clear verses. Proverbs 12 and 24. The hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Verses, verse 29 out of chapter 22. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings, but he will not stand before obscure men. So when someone 
is a hard worker, they typically get increased responsibility. Isn't that true? They're, they have an increased reputation, right? There's a respect. I know a guy, uh, this is kind of illustrating the point in reverse, who was going to go plant a church with a guy, I think up in the Northeast. But when he providentially worked with the guy who was going to be the lead planner and he saw how lazy he was, he says, I ain't going with that guy. Why? Because his respect for him went down based on his work ethic. Is that how, if, if that's how he works out in the world, how is he going to work in the church? So, wealth and responsibility. Now, there is a third and final motivation. Um, without which, I think the first two motivations could be worldly at best, worldly at best, and perhaps idols at worst. And that's why some of you are like reluctant. Wealth is a, is a motivation, yes, in the right way. Now, before we get to that, I want to remind us that, that the Proverbs are principles, not promises. They're true almost everywhere, almost all the time, with almost all people, but they're not true everywhere, all the time, with every person, right? The, the Scripture itself gives us glaring exceptions to this, right? So they're principles, which is why we need this third motivation to persevere. You know what the ultimate motivation to be diligent is? Anyone want to say? Well, it's on your lap right now, so, oh boy, you guess. Um, love. Love is the ultimate motivator to not be a sloth and to be a sluggard and try and be ant-like. Love. So back to the picture of diligence, Jesus Christ. What compelled Jesus to embrace his work in all of its aspects? Finish his work that allowed him to enter into his act of rest. What, 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 what compelled Jesus? Love. Love first for who? For the Father, for God. I always do that which pleases the Father, he said, right? And then out of that, love for who? Love for us. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Jesus heartily Embrace that. So likewise, if we would be, as Jesus was, persistently diligent, then we got to be compelled by love for the Father, the Son, the Spirit, first and foremost, and then flowing out of that, love for those that we've called, we've been called to diligently care for, spouses, families, neighbors, churches, all, all of that. Those that we've been providentially called to care for. We, we have to be stirred. We'll be diligent by love. Now, Rebecca DeYoung wrote a book. She's a professor at Calvin College. She wrote a book on seven deadly sins. And this is what she says. This is really helpful. She says laziness, a sloth, being like a sluggard, is, quote, resistance to the demands of love. Hmm, that makes sense, doesn't it? Laziness is resistance to the demands of love. And then she does this. She applies that to the diligence we need relationally in marriage. She says, she gives this example. She says, um, say, say, if this has ever happened in this church, a couple has an argument. Things are tough. She highlights how each Spouse is tempted to retreat physically into the corner of a house 
or at least mentally into a corner of their heart to retreat. It's easier, this is what she says, to retreat, to stay at a distance, than do what she calls the hard work of saying I'm sorry, of asking for forgiveness, of repenting, of just trying to work things out. And she says, she asks this question, do they want a relationship? Well, yeah. Do they want to do what it takes to stay in that relationship? Well, not exactly right now, or not until the other person decides to do what they're supposed to do first. Anybody get that? She says, and I quote, we become lazy in love. Colin Smith preaching on the same text on slothfulness from Proverbs says, quote, they let the relationship drift because they're not prepared to do the sheer hard work to fix what is wrong and to do what is in their power to make it right. It is a great sin, he says, to let love die because you're too lazy to do what it takes to keep it alive. Now, I'm closing right here. Both Rebecca Young, Colin Smith, dialed in on what Scripture highlights as the motivation, the ultimate motivation to fight laziness, not just in our marriage relationship, but in every arena of life. Love. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, says this. Paul, writing the church at Colossae, says, Whatever you do, work how? Half-heartedly? Heartily. From the heart. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord. For you serve the Lord Christ, and you will receive the inheritance of your reward. Love, quite frankly, led Jesus, and love must lead us. Love for God, first and foremost, and love for those that we're called to serve in all the appropriate ways for the relationships that we're in, physically, economically, relationally, intimately, all of that. And you might say, but I shanked it. Anybody ever say, I've shanked it? Yeah, okay. All of us, all of us, all of us. Thank God for the cross. And what we say is, Okay, I have shanked it. I'm sorry. Let's move on. Let's go to the cross, own what we need to own, and keep moving forward. See, there's no such thing as a shank that has to kill you in the water if you look to the cross, right? Because Jesus took our punishment and allows us then to receive and to extend forgiveness. So you might have shanked it, but that's not the last chapter. Not at all. You might say, but nothing good is coming of it. I've been busting my butt at work, or on the team, or in a marriage, or in a family, or in a friendship, whatever. Well, Galatians 6 says, we shall reap in due season if we faint not. So keep on keeping on. Let love motivate persistent diligence. And then you might say, but you know what? I, I'm doing so much behind the scenes and I'm trying, and I don't feel appreciated or whatever. Everyone's felt that like that somewhere in life, right? 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 And so what you need to do is fast forward to those words that you're going to hear when you stand before the king. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the, into the joy of your Lord. 
This is the word of God. Father, thank you so much for the practicality of the book of Proverbs, slothfulness and diligence. And yet as practical as it is, what makes it so practical is it connects us to the cross. It connects us to Christ, who is the picture, the ultimate picture of diligence and embracing his work, finishing his work, and entering into his rest. God, I, I ask that you would just stir us up as a people who are diligent in every arena of life and all those levels of relationship, not simply because we want wealth, biblically speaking, historically speaking, not simply because we want respect or responsibility, but because we love. We love you first and foremost, and we love those that we're called to walk with. So Lord, yeah, please use this. I pray for the person who maybe um, is hardened to this truth, Lord, that you would just chisel their heart right now. I also pray for the person who is just crushed by it, God, that you would just comfort them and remind them that you are with them and you who's begun a good work will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ. So we just want to glory in you, our Redeemer. We want to glory in you in these moments. Um, may you minister to our hearts so that we respond to the word of God in a way that brings you honor and brings greater transformation into our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.